Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Brighter Lens. West, one of the directors. I'm Julie Cohen, one of the directors. And I'm Talia McMahon, the producer. Betsy and Julie approached me saying I should say first that I'd worked with Betsy and Julie before on another project. We worked on a project called Makers where we were profiling groundbreaking women. And they, um, as RBG was taking off, they reached out to me to say, you know, we have an idea for another film and we want to talk to you about it. And so we met, we had lunch and they started to, you know, they started off saying, do you know this person, Polly Murray? And I was like, I don't, I don't, that name doesn't ring a bell. And so as they started to tick off all the things and we'll go through them, but, you know, just to highlight a few things, Polly Murray uh, protested sitting in the back of a bus, you know, well before Rosa Parks did, Polly Murray staged a sit-in to integrate lunch counters in DC well before the Greensboro sit-ins. Polly Murray, and these two things, I will say, the two things I'm about to say were the things that were most impactful for me, that Polly Murray actually came up with the legal argument that the NAACP used to argue for school integration for Brown versus Board of Education, and then also was really um, the architect of the legal argument that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was advancing for gender equality. And so the fact that I had not known Polly Murray's name, but was aware of all of these events was really shocking. And the more I thought about it, it was also infuriating that, you know, it seemed unjust that I didn't know Polly Murray. And I knew that most people that I knew had never heard Polly Murray's name. And so there was no way I could pass up the opportunity to be a part of it. Yeah. And so um, we were so happy to be able to partner with Talea and start on this journey. Uh, it, it was RBG who first uh, alerted us to Polly Murray because RBG actually put Polly Murray's name on the, the cover of the first legal brief that uh, RBG wrote as, a, as an attorney fighting for women's equality in the early 70s. And then as Talea said, the revelation of, of the place that uh, Polly played in all of these social justice movements and then and really you know, recognized by some people, but largely ignored by history. And that's what really was driving us because everybody we spoke to would be, oh, who's that? So Polly Murray died in 1985. So the challenge is to bring a person who's not here to life. And luckily, despite the fact that Polly was somehow ignored by history. Polly had a real sense of history and Polly's place in history. And Polly had saved just boxes and boxes of, of archive materials. This was uh, not only writings because Polly was a memoirist and a poet and had written about family history, but also uh, diaries and letters and you know a slew of material in the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, which was the, the next step to start telling the story. And, and luckily, audio tapes, which when we first listened to them, 
just blew us away. The the sound of Polly's strong, forceful voice. Uh, we thought, wow, we can tell this story. And then actually, Julie made a great discovery in the archive, which she can talk about that I think helped us tremendously. Yeah, I mean, I think Polly's voice and Polly's own words are just a huge part of telling this story. And when you hear Polly speaking on a, just a whole myriad of topics from, you know, American constitutional law to, you know, decades worth of American history to more personal uh, family stories. It just feels really, really powerful. And we knew that the audio was going to be, to a large extent, really the backbone of this whole film. Um, in addition to that, um, outside of the Polly Murray collection, uh, a young woman who had interviewed Polly on videotape in the late 70s as part of a project to develop a feminist uh, curriculum. This woman whose name is, uh, was Lynn Conroy, like did this did this videotape that was part of this project and just thought this person that I just met with was so amazing like almost having the same revelation that we were having many decades before like this person was so amazing I'm gonna actually just take these tapes and bring them to the archive at Harvard completely coincidentally of the fact that this is the archive that Polly's papers and boxes were gonna later end up after Polly's death so it happened that those videotapes you know an archive is a enclosed thing. So Polly's archive is what Polly and family members brought to Harvard to be part of it. And then separately elsewhere in, in the Harvard library is this other thing and something called the Lynn Conroy collection of this videotape of Polly. It was shot on VHS tape. It actually hadn't been digitized before our film. And so we asked uh, the great people of the Schlesinger Library, like, hey, can you digitize this and just put it up online and we can just have a look and see. And although it was a little rough around the edges Quality-wise, it was just so striking to see Polly interacting with the beloved uh, Black Labrador Roy, and um, and just to be speaking about life in a more personal way, and seeing Polly's kind of magnetic smile dressed at that point in a priest's collar because Polly late in life became an ordained Episcopal priest. Like ever, it's like sort of one accomplishment after the other. So we really felt like that um, brought things to life, and we were able to, I think, maybe make more use of it than we thought we might. When we first looked at some of the footage outside of the interview, which is, includes Polly typing on a typewriter and looking through some, some old photo albums, and my initial thought was like, oh, it's too bad we can't use this stuff because like there's hits on the tape. And when our editor, Sinkway Northern, started to put together an early sequence kind of introducing that footage, he just put the stuff with the hits right in it. And it, it's not only that it looked fine, it's like almost like it looked better than if, there were, than if it had been perfect. I think it's important to point out that for us, it became this, uh, the materials that they're talking about, the, the audio tapes and really this videotape really helped the story come alive. It really became a key component for us because it's very easy for a figure like Polly Murray. I would say, I felt like, reading about Polly Murray, if I had to meet Polly Murray, I would be very intimidated. <laughs> and this person seems sort of larger than life. And as soon as you see, as Julie was saying, you see Polly smile and Polly just lights up a room and just really being able to get at Polly's personality and seeing how warm Polly is or was um, really made all the difference for us. We really wanted to create a relatable person. The footage really helped us achieve that. Wow. I'm like, I'm just so in awe of like, yeah, all this, this material that you had and, and how you went about like choosing what to put in the film. And I'm wondering, did you feel 
a responsibility too. Like so many people, unfortunately, don't know, you know, Polly Murray's name, which I, I love the title of the film. Um, did you, yeah? How did you kind of hold that responsibility in creating the film? Well, it was a challenge to figure out what to include because at a certain point we realized we cannot tell every single thing that Polly Murray did. This is a documentary. This is not a 600 page biography. You know, there have been biographies written. So the challenge was really to distill the most important, what we felt worked in the narrative, which is not to say that there aren't some important things that Polly did that we had to leave out of the film, but to to really um, drive the narrative through Polly's voice. And sometimes the choices we made had to do with what we had available in Polly's voice telling us about. Uh, you know, we also interviewed as many people as we could who knew Polly. Polly died in 1985, so that's a dwindling number, but luckily Polly was the kind of person who made friends with, with younger people. And so uh, we were able to talk to um, two of Polly's students at Brandeis, who for us really just brought the, the back half of the film alive because they, they talked about the experience of, of working with an older professor who initially they thought was a little behind the times because Polly was very taken in teaching about civil rights Polly really believed in the word Negro with a capital N. And this was right in the middle of the black power movement. And so there was actually a conflict in the classroom between Polly and some of the, some of the uh, African-American students in the class. And then this incredible transformation in which Polly became friends with students and to sit down and talk to Ernie Meyer and Reggie Sapp, how many years later? 50 years later, they are now looking back and remembering how incredible Polly was and how Polly accepted them for who they were, didn't look down on them because they hadn't had a great education, tried to help them, what a resource. That was, that was an amazing gift to, to be able to talk to people who knew Polly. And I should also add that, you know, the archives, when you start working on a film like this, you don't, we heard there's massive archive, but you don't really know what's inside of it, right? You don't know what it contains. And so the more time we spent with the archive, the more it became clear that Polly hadn't just saved legal briefs and writings that were academic and professional. Polly had saved so many letters and so many diary entries and um, medical records. The one thing we haven't spoken about yet is that Polly is what we would now potentially call trans or non-binary. It seems that way from the records. And so there is a folder with these medical records where Polly is actually writing to doctors seeking um, testosterone treatment, saying that I know that um, people are seeing me as a woman, but I'm actually a man. And so the more that we had records to show that, the more it became clear to us that we actually could craft a narrative that interwove Polly's personal life as well. Yeah, that was a part of the story that didn't exist on the audio and videotapes because it wasn't something that Polly was talking about publicly in Lifetime. And yet, you know, this fascinating situation of someone who had gone to a lot of trouble to save an archival record of their whole life. And in that, in that material, like, tells this whole other 
really powerful and poignant layer to the story where you know so you don't have the the noise of you know the of Polly sort of loudly proclaiming the desire to have the right to racial and gender equality like this was something that wasn't even spoken and yet in in the letters um and and in pictures to some extent too there's this under underneath it's just deep hope and push to create a more you know a, a different kind of life you know and asking for male hormone treatments asking at one at one point when Polly was going into surgery please look inside my body and see if possibly there's a male organ somewhere in my abdominal cavity you know and remember that that's this is in the 1940s so at a time when people weren't talking about the possibility of being trans although of course there were people who were trans. Wow. It's so incredible. It just feels like with Polly saving all of these materials in all these, you know, different um, sections of Polly's life, like that there was this knowing that in the future things would be different and we will have learned things. And that just is so striking. I don't know of another person to point to maybe in the past who really has saved their life in that way. It's just mind-blowing. And I guess, um, what are each of you most excited for audiences to come away with after watching this film? Well, I mean, fundamentally, we're excited for people to learn who Polly Murray was. And, you know, I think there are so many, you know, things to appreciate about the way Polly approached life, the persistence the fact that, you know, Polly just had so many struggles early on in life and continuing, continuing up until the, through into Brandeis, uh, when people were denigrating her level of scholarship and Polly had to fight a ridiculous battle for tenure uh, at a point where somebody else might have just given up and been bitter. So I think, uh, you know, that's that's one thing. But there are many others. I'll let uh, Julie and Talea take, well, take over. I'll say one thing that I have found so inspiring and really instructive for um, people in the modern day is that we're talking a lot about Polly's successes. But the truth is, in the film, we also deal with those several of Polly's losses, that there are things that Polly goes for there. There are morally just righteous efforts that Polly is making to change society that don't work out. And, you know, it takes a while for Polly to even start to see any victories. And I think it's such a lesson that, you know, if you have that own internal conviction, that you can let that motivate you and keep with it, even if the successes and the wins aren't coming as quickly as you might have imagined. Yeah, I think I'll say, uh, uh, leaving, broadening out from just Polly's story, I think we're also hoping that people come away rethinking the entirety of American history. Maybe that's a slightly ambitious thing to say uh, for a 90-minute for film. But, you know, I think you can sort of make the analogy when you realize something like, wait a second, this incredible person had such an impact on all of these historical events that I've heard of without hearing the person's name. Like, can I perhaps draw from that, that a lot of what I thought I understood about history isn't necessarily exactly as it was presented in my elementary school textbooks? I mean, you know, we present things, I, I think in some ways that's a big part of all the political movements of the past 20 to 30 years or so is moving people away from thinking that what 
the sort of shared understanding of American history is somehow objective rather than uh, a product of who was writing those books and who was making the decisions that it's a little bit easier to digest certain certain figures than others. And then, and so somebody, you know, Polly for so many reasons, you know, among them, the fact that Polly primarily was an intellectual, like often we end up focusing more on the people who go fight the battles and are out on the streets and like, and, you know, do a legal strategy. Whereas Polly's main thing were thoughts and ideas and seeing things in a whole new paradigms. And, you know, I, I think you could, if, if we went looking for them, I think you could probably find all kinds of incredible American intellectuals whose ideas are at the very core of a lot of things that have evolved that you just never hear the person's name. Wow. Yeah. So last, last question, slightly different direction as collaborators ourselves, we're, we're always interested in other, other people's collaborations. And so Betsy and Julie, could you speak to how you began working together and became collaborators? Yeah. Um, well, Julie and I worked together about a decade ago now on, uh, the project about the modern women's movement and also with Talia. So the three of us were working on this massive archive of interviews of groundbreaking women, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, which then uh, about, you know, five years later led Julie and I to make the documentary RBG. And then we have repartnered with Talia on My Name is Polly Murray. And you know, it's been in the time of the pandemic, it's been an incredible gift, really, to have partners to work with on this project, even though, you know, we're scattered. Julie and I are both in different parts of New York City. And uh, Talia is now in LA. We started out working together in New York. And so for about what, a year and a half or almost two years when we were developing the film and then eventually going into production, we were together. And then uh, obviously in March, we were separate, but I think we know each other pretty well and are able to try to keep each other in the loop at all times. Like, hey, you know, I'm going to do this or, you know, include each other on all email conversations so that nobody feels left out and then sort of separate different tasks. You know, I'm going to take a whack at this part of Polly's story while Talia is working on this part and Julie's doing that. And then we all come together on with the miracle of Zoom and also the cloud and look at cuts with our, um, you know, incredible collaborator, Sinquay Northern, who became, you know, part of this whole group. I mean, you just make it work. I think, uh, you know, when, when you talk about like, oh, how did you collaborate? It's as if the decision is like, oh, let's become filmmaking partners where really things are in our business, I think tend to really work project by project. And it made, it made sense for, for Betsy and I to work on the RBG project because we both had had some dealings with her and had the thought this could be an amazing doc. That went so great that it just kind of led naturally to, to other projects. So that's, you know, and I think when you're working on something, I feel like all of us had our heads and souls very much in Polly Murray's life. I mean, you're spending a lot of time just listening to those audio tapes and reading through the letters and the person feels really present, which is an incredibly fun experience to have with 
someone who's both amazing but also died many years ago to like have the opportunity to be so delved in that you feel like you're you're feeling and hearing the person I just feel like it's sort of like a special experience that we all shared I'll just add to that is just that you know I think um, the nature of what we do is inherently collaborative and so I think we all have a lot of experience with coming up with ideas and sharing ideas, but also being very receptive to other people's ideas and really appreciating what each person brings to the project. And so from the very beginning, you know, because I'd worked with Betsy and Julie before, I knew that that was the spirit that they brought to this work. And so I think that's really what has enabled us to have these different uh, collaborations over different projects. You can't be defensive. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You got to listen. <laughs> you gotta listen you gotta be open it's it's a journey and it was a lot of fun amazing well, that's, a, that's a great note to end on thanks so much for chatting with us we love the documentary and it's really nice to hear your thoughts on it thanks so much for having us this was a great you can find us at a brighter lens.com and at a brighter lens on instagram and twitter you can email us at a brighter lens at gmail.com you can download the show wherever you listen to podcasts and on apple podcasts where we'd love it if you left us a review our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos were designed by Meg Cafferty. Our associate producer is Elise Welch. A Brighter Lens was created by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell.